Whatever the substance is, whatever the behavior is, it's not doing for you what you hoped it would do for you. And it's actually in the big picture when you zoom out, although it's providing temporary relief, it's not providing you what you really are seeking deep down. It's just giving you kind of a snooze button on the pain or the loneliness or whatever it is that you don't want to feel and are having trouble accepting. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guest views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. Hey all, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy that we are all together listening and talking about this very important conversation about substance use in college. Um, Today I have with me Savannah and Kate, who are employees and counselors of the Counseling and Wellness Center here at UF. And we have special guest, Alan, who works in private practice in uh, Florida, but he has a wealth of experience and knowledge uh, working with people who abuse substances and who have had trouble with addiction and substance abuse issues. So just wanted to say welcome to you all. Thank you for having us. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great. So, Alan, um, if we could start uh, with you. So, yeah, thank you. Drinking, experimenting with drugs, this is kind of common among college age students. You know, you're experiencing freedom for the first time. You're, you know, socializing, going to parties, going out to clubs and bars. And, you know, everybody drinks, everybody smokes. So why, why is it a big deal? Sure. And and that's a great question. And I think the extent to which it's a big deal is going to depend on a few different factors, um, both, you know, which substance we're talking about, as well as, you know, your family history, you know, because there is a genetic component to addiction. Um, If you have one or more family members on one or both sides, you know, of your mother and father's side that have struggled with especially alcoholism or other uh, substance dependence, then, you know, you have a bigger risk factor for developing that yourself. And, you know, there's some other common experiential factors, you know, that we also look at, and that includes trauma. If, if you are somebody who has experienced trauma, uh, especially if you've developed post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, you're going to be at a much higher risk, especially untreated PTSD as well as somebody who, you know, might have a lower tolerance for uh, stress or discomfort. People who find themselves more uptight and anxious and stressed, uh, who don't have a good set of coping skills, you know, you're going to be somebody who is going to find it a lot more tempting to repeatedly rely on or lean on um, a substance to create 
that feeling of relaxation and relief from that uh, tension or discomfort that is more difficult for you to feel relief from. So this isn't to say that this is a, a character defect or this is uh, you know anything that is wrong with your upbringing or your personality. I don't want anyone to take away that message. But for whatever reason, uh, whether it's cultural or you know it just some cultures and families have more resources and um, opportunities to invest and promote, you know, the emotional and mental health skill sets that uh, help people cope and promote resiliency. And some people receive that more in their upbringing and some people don't. This is probably the first time some people might even be thinking about their past in those terms. So for all of those reasons, as well as, you know, mental health issues in general, such as, um, you know, generalized anxiety, depression, you know, a lot of the mental health disorders we think of when we think of mental health, if you're someone who's already struggling with those, I would say that you're also at a greater risk for developing a potentially unhealthy relationship with some of these substances. So this isn't to say that everybody who experiments or, you know, uh, goes to a party and uses a substance is going to become a full-blown addict. But for some people, I would say it is much more of a slippery slope than for others um, because of those factors. Yeah. And you hit on a lot of really good points because I think a lot of times, you know, I'll talk to college students who will say, well, you know, I, you know, just wanted to go and drink so I could have fun and laugh and and not be so anxious around friends or in social settings. And then there are others who might say, well, yeah, you know, I, I smoke pot at night so I can relax. It helps me sleep, helps with my anxiety, things like that. One of the things that I wanted to kind of go back to what you were talking about was that trauma piece. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I don't know if, you know, because trauma is so subjective, right? You know, there, there are certain things that people are like, well, I don't know if this was traumatic. And then other people who, who can definitely identify what that trauma is. Absolutely. So what I, my definition for trauma that I like as one where you had an experience where you were completely overwhelmed and you did not have the skills or the know-how to navigate your way through that experience and believe that you would be okay. I like that definition because it admits for a wide range of experiences because what's traumatic for one person might not be traumatic for another uh, and vice versa. Going back again to another great talking point that you mentioned was the whole family, you know, growing up in a family and maybe not having those same resources or coping skills and such like that. And something that I have personally experienced is that, you know, my family would get together, there would be drinks everywhere, you know, so-and-so would bring beer, another one would bring wine. It still is that way. Alcohol has always been in abundance in my family. And, you know, sometimes people would drink maybe a little too much and they might've been teased or criticized about it, but nobody ever said, Hey, you know, you've got a problem. So I'm, and Savannah, I'm wondering, you know, from your point of view, you know, you've worked in, in substance use for a long time. When family norms are like that, how can that impact the college student's perspective? Yeah, I would say that family norms greatly influences a college student's perspective because 
for traditional undergrad students, they're coming directly from their family, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, non-traditional older adults that come back to school later, that, that wouldn't be the case. But when you come to college, all you've ever known is your family. And so I think that the norms around alcohol or other substances will influence the glasses that you wear, so to speak, to see the world. And so I I can disclose that alcoholism runs on both sides of my family. My mom and dad both struggled with alcohol in different ways. And so I wore those glasses when I went to college. I also went to Flagler College, which is a dry campus, which means that there were no alcohol or drugs allowed. And so that kind of took care of that problem for me at that time. But for students coming to UF campus, that that is not the case, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I do think about families where alcohol was abundant or acceptable or not, air quotes, a problem that coming to college may be a similar atmosphere. I can share about my story that from ages zero to 11, alcohol was not a problem in my family. And due to some circumstances, ages 11 to 18, alcohol was a problem in my family. Um, And so watching my mom abuse alcohol and looking back, my father was abusing alcohol at the time. I didn't know at the time, but looking back, I knew at that point, something was wrong. Something was different. My parents weren't the parents I had known. And so my introduction to that was really clear that alcohol was a problem. And so I remember thinking in my teenage years, I'm never going to drink. I am never going to do that. Eventually I did. I I have consumed alcohol and there is always a dialogue of awareness in my mind when I am drinking alcohol because of my experiences. Mm -hmm. And so for other college students who may have come from a similar family where alcohol or drugs were explicitly a problem, I imagine they have different glasses that they see the campus through Mm -hmm. or different questions that they might ask themselves about their use. Mm -hmm. When do you think students should be worried that maybe they're drinking too much or using too much? That's, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Because it's okay until it's not okay. Right. And the not okay part can look very different for each individual. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I have previously worked in a residential treatment facility for substance abuse, and we would have to do an intake, and I would ask the same questions. So I can tell you kind of some of the the general questions, um, and then I'll tell you like my personal question that I asked myself. The general questions are, have you wanted to reduce your drinking and have been unable to? When you start drinking, do you drink more than you intended to? Are you experiencing negative consequences from your drinking and continue to drink afterwards, right? So those are some of the pieces, some general questions that are good to ask yourself. There are a few more on that list, but I can't, I can't think of them right this second. I'm sure we can link to a questionnaire with a more extensive list of those questions. But for me personally, it's about, am I having this drink of alcohol to experience relief? Am I reaching for this drink or substance 
because I'm trying to get rid of something. I'm trying to manage something inside of myself. And that for me is always that constant dialogue that I have in my experience. And I think that's the most important question for someone to ask themselves in their relationship with alcohol or substances. Okay. And, you know, the negative consequences that occur, you know, that could be a wide range of things. Mm -hmm. It could be Mm -hmm. like getting pulled over for a DUI. It could be missing class the next morning because you're hungover. Um, You know, a lot of different things could be those negative consequences from, from drinking or using too much. Absolutely. And that's, that's why it's so hard to say to someone else, hey, you have a problem because what's unmanageable to one person may not be unmanageable to another. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I did a little bit of research to prep for this and the kind of consequences we're talking about, the majority don't hit until ages 25 to 44, which Mm -hmm. is just outside of our college population. Right. Right. And so when you're in college drinking and smoking, Typically, you're not experiencing yourself or seeing your friends experience the DUIs, the arrests, um, overdoses, deaths, divorces, ending of relationships. Some of those, you might see some of those, but it's not that stark contrast that goes, oh, this is creating a problem in my life. That being said, you're right. If you're missing classes, if you're missing assignments, if you're missing obligations because you want to drink and have fun. I think that's what a lot of college students do. And it's that fine tooth comb of going through your own motivations for that. But then there's, there's also the flip side of, are you engaging in risky behavior because of alcohol use? Alan, I know that you had something that you wanted to chime in with. I did. I just wanted to add on to uh, what Savannah explained uh, very well, I thought. And that was adding to that question list. Um, am I using, especially am I starting to use multiple substances to manage my mood and or energy levels? Because I'm going to just call it out. I know it's very popular mm-hmm. among college students to use Adderall to enhance study period times. And it creates for a lot of people, especially when they're not prescribed, I should say not prescribed, especially uh, Adderall, or they're sharing it with friends. Um, It's incredibly prevalent um, among students, uh, adult students, especially high school students, especially those who are at, you know, very high stress, high performance uh, universities, that there is a lot of pressure to maintain grades and to focus and study and, you know, gosh, I was at that party last night and now I have all these mm-hmm. tests coming up. It's exam week. I just need to get in the zone and study for six hours, you know? Okay. So these are some of the questions that I start to like to look at, uh, such as, okay, am I having to, even if it's just, you know, caffeine, am I drinking so much that now I'm tired and I can't focus. So am I using more than one substance to start to manage my mood, my uh, ability to concentrate and focus? So 
you know, that is another, I think, important question. And another thing to look at, um, I start to have to use other substances to mitigate or lessen the effects or after effects of my using other substances. So I just wanted to throw that in there because that is one of those kind of gray, slippery slope areas that the more you start noticing you're doing that, I would say, ooh, that's at best a yellow flag, if not a red flag. Kate, I want to loop you um, into the conversation too, to piggyback off of what you know, Alan was saying. So let's say a student's like, yeah, you know what, I can answer yes to a couple of those questions. You know, is it possible for a student to just kind of cut back on their use? Or do you think they might have to stop completely using everything? Yeah, so, you know, that that's a very personal, like, answer, you know, I, I think that for a lot of people, like, harm reduction works really well. And like, that means, you know, cutting back and being able to effectively drink or smoke weed on occasion, and, you know, their life can be manageable. I think that the key is, are, are you, are you an addict? Are you an alcoholic? You know? And so for me, like I have a very personal experience with addiction and it's part of my story. And, you know, I've been in recovery now for uh, nine years. And for me, that means abstaining from any and all forms of drugs, alcohol included. And, um, you know, actually there's a, the, the questionnaire that Alan and Savannah were talking about, like in terms of like biopsychosocials, there is a questionnaire pamphlet um, that is uh, a pamphlet that we in Narcotics Anonymous use as just like a reading to kind of inform ourselves of addiction or, or, or whatever it is. Um, and it's called Am I an Addict? And there are several questions that Savannah and Alan named. And there, you know, there are other questions too about like, have you ever tried to stop or control using? Does using interfere with eating or sleeping? Does the thought of not using scare you? Do you think a lot about Mm. drugs or alcohol? Have you had irrational or indefinable fears? Has it affected your sexual relationships? Like, so there's just a lot of questions or 29 of them actually. And after the questions, there's like a whole like couple of paragraphs and we can link to the, this pamphlet and the episode, but there. It says the actual number of yes responses wasn't as important as how we felt inside and how addiction has affected our lives. Some of these questions Mm. don't even mention drugs. This is because addiction is an insidious disease that affects all areas of our lives. And I think that that's really important because like, it's a lot about the behaviors and the, the thought processes and the feelings that make us want to use in the first place, like Alan was talking about. Could you speak a little bit more, Kate, about your journey and mm-hmm. how how you knew it had become a problem in your life? Yeah. So I, I got clean um, at 23 years old. And so the majority of my using was between ages 17 to 23. Um, which is, you know, prime time college age. Right. And uh, try and shorten it as much as possible. <laughs> so I started using 
alcohol and smoking weed. And, you know, I thought my life was pretty manageable. Like this is what I <clears throat> had seen other friends do and that they, they, you know, were, had jobs and, or were in school and doing life just fine. And kind of jumping back to what we talked about earlier and family, like alcohol was very prevalent in my family. And, you know, it, it was the focal point of a lot of family events and parties and get togethers and, you know, birthdays and like, you know, like that was just, that was just part of life. And so it, it seemed very normal to me to drink. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that was what I had in my mind is when I started drinking, I will say that the very first time that I drank, that wasn't like a sip of, you know, dad's wine or whatever, Mm -hmm. I blacked out. And Mm -hmm. from that point forward, I was chasing that. Like that is, that is how I wanted to feel nothing. Um, You were chasing the blackout. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the people who I was drinking with also were blacking out. And so it wasn't then that I was like, oh, this is a problem Um, because that is what I saw. Like that was, that was probably normal because, you know, so-and-so over here is blacking out. This person was blacking out too. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was, it was years before I realized that it was a issue and it had escalated, you know, it, I I appreciate us having this conversation about alcohol um, because it is so prevalent and, you know, in college, there are so many different types of drugs to try. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, I, I tried a lot and every drug I tried was like opening a new window to my soul. And I felt like coming home, you know, like I like to, to talk about how like it feel, it felt like a light switch that went off inside me. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, this is it. This is how I want to feel either that nothingness that I described, or I wanted to escape feelings of worthlessness or hopelessness or uh, inadequacy um, or anxiety or depression. And each time I used, it did that. It helped until it didn't. (laughs) Um, Right. And so I think that when I realized that it was really an issue was when I, um, I, I wanted to die, honestly. Like I, I, I wasn't actively trying to kill myself, um, but I had thoughts of wanting to die every day. I, you know, I, I would go to sleep at night and just pray that I wouldn't wake up in the morning. Um, and mm-hmm. knowing that at that point I was using against my will, I didn't want to use anymore, but it wasn't, it didn't feel like a choice anymore. It, it felt like I, this was something that I had to do or else I was going to get sick or else I was going to feel all the feelings of guilt and shame and anxiety and depression and hopelessness and worthlessness and wanting to die. And I didn't want to feel those things. And so, you know, we in Narcotics Anonymous, uh, which is the the fellowship that I chose to become a part of, um, we, we say that a lot of like, we were using against our will and the choice was gone for us. And it wasn't until we 
uh, were able to get clean, that that choice became a reality again. And now every day I, I choose to not use. And if, I, if one day I decide to relapse, like that will be a choice. I, I will have that choice of I am going to choose to use, which I, you know, don't ever want. So, yeah. But when you say I was using against mm-hmm. my will, that's powerful. Yeah. It felt powerful. And, you know, it's important for me and I know a lot of my fellow addicts in recovery to remember that feeling of like that powerlessness right? of that powerful statement of like, I, I was, I was using against my will. And it lends itself to a feeling of loss of control. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like pretty soon the alcohol and the drugs, they just, they take over. They take over yeah, your life. They do. You know, and I, I yeah, I, I used, like I said, from about 17 to 23, which is not a very long time. You know, my, my husband, who's also an addict in recovery, he used from like eight years old till 35, you know, and so that's a really, really long time. And our stories are completely different. Our upbringings are completely different. Our traumas are completely different. But it's it's cool to know that like the feelings are the same. We we both felt that pain, that worthlessness, that hopelessness on a daily basis, and that unmanageability. It sounds like you have been able to create a wonderful support system in you know not just your husband, but in the Narcotics Anonymous community. And I think a lot of our college students kind of worry about that. It's like, well, if I stop drinking, if I stop smoking pot, if I stop doing Adderall, whatever else they're doing, how is this going to affect my social life? I'm not going to have any friends left because all of my friends do it. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Hard conversations are hard for a reason. It can be uncomfortable to reach out to someone who is showing signs of distress, especially if they are a friend, family member, or student. Cognito could help you build the confidence to have these hard conversations. Cognito is a 30-minute online training simulation course provided by the CWC to help you notice signs of distress and appear, learn how to talk about these signs, practice sharing your concerns, and motivate them to seek help. Visit counseling.ufl.edu forward slash cognito to learn more and get started. Caring starts with you. Yeah, that is a super scary thing because connection is the most important thing about life. I mean, in my opinion, you know, right? if I don't have connection, you know, what am I doing? Um, and so, yeah, that was uh, a really scary thing about getting clean in the first place was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to hang around these same people in the same places and doing the same things that I used to mm-hmm. do and see and be with. And so how, mm-hmm. what, what am I going to do? And, you know, through like I said, I, I chose Narcotics Anonymous, but there are 12-step fellowships there, you know, if you want to do church, if you want to do psychology, if you want to do peer support, if you, there are tons of other ways to kind of like 
get and stay clean, there are communities where you never have to be alone. Um, and they are available and they are out there. You just kind of have to be willing to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation of meeting new people. And that is super scary, especially when you don't have alcohol or drugs anymore to kind of cope with that social anxiety. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, I, I was able to, after a lot of sitting there feeling uncomfortable, I mean, I'm not going to say it was super easy because it wasn't, but, you know, I was able to create a family in NA and, those are the people that I choose to spend my time with and choose to surround myself with on a daily basis. And that is my social connection. And I know that for me, and I know a lot of others, like when I first got clean, it was like, okay, so I have to go to how many meetings and for how long for, and I have to sit there for an hour and what, like, that was not something that sounded like a good time to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it it changed into like, I get to, I get to go to these meetings. I get to go to dinner with these people after I get to go get coffee with a friend before I get to do all of these activities that we plan, you know, like we go to the Springs and go to the movies. I mean, pre-pandemic, of course, of course (laughs) we have dances and campouts and conventions and pool parties. Like there are just tons of things that we do and it's fun. Like they are fun things and I didn't have to use and I remember them (laughs) the next day. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was my social connection and they were other like-minded people who were we have the same goals of, of staying clean. Um, and I know that there are tons of different support groups that are available. And I mean, even here at the CWC, we have several groups that either people are in recovery or they are trying to cut back or, you know, like the goals are the, are the same um, of finding mm-hmm. those connections. But yeah, I mean, it, it it's hard in the actual setting that, that, college is of trying to find those people. It's scary and it's hard. So, you know, you might have to go, like I said, outside of your comfort zone, outside of UF or whatever college you might be in to find that social connection, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And I like how you said, you know, you shifted your focus from, I have to go to, I get Mm -hmm. to go. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Alan, you wanted to say something? I did. I just wanted to jump in and especially, you know, in light of social distancing and all of the, you know, challenges that go along with that. And I I do want to also add the emotional and psychological challenges that go along with that. There are some great resources available for virtual meetings as well as phone-in meetings that I like to share with people, especially uh, the clients I deal with who have social anxiety, who are afraid of rejection or anonymity. There are, it is so wonderful, and and hopefully we can provide a link to this on the website, but there are phone-in meetings every hour, almost on the hour, every day, 365 days a year, and you can call in anonymously and listen to a meeting. If you're on vacation, you know, I'd often share these with clients who are going to be away from their home group. So I wanted to say that, that there are phone-in meetings where no one has to see your face. You don't even have to say a word. You can just listen 
and hear from other people and get support from knowing you're not alone in this journey. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't have to even be at the point where you're willing to say I'm an addict to call in. If you want to just try it out, you know, part of, and maybe uh, the rest of you can relate, part of my graduate school education was being exposed to some of the resources that are available and going to an open meeting and seeing what it's like. And so you don't have to even fully identify as an addict. You could just be curious. You could just want to check things out. And I did also want to give a shout out to Smart Recovery for those who are maybe have some negative connotations or bad experiences with a particular 12-step group or community or person or whatever. Um, SmartRecovery.org is truly just an empirical, cognitive behavioral-based resource that Anyone who identifies as struggling with either a behavioral or substance uh, dependency or addiction can go and get support in the same group. So whether it's overeating or drinking or cocaine or gambling, they're all in the same group because it's really the same principles that are going to be used to help support and get people the resources and support they need to get help and find a way out of that unhealthy cycle that they're trouble, having trouble getting out of on their own. So I just wanted to add that into the awesome 12-step uh, community that does exist in Gainesville. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to touch on something you mentioned, Alan. I know that this episode is about alcohol and drugs in the college population and addiction can be behavioral as well. There are addictive patterns that exist. I believe in every human being. And so going back to my story of alcoholism running in my family, I am not an alcoholic and I have struggled with disordered sexual behavior and compulsive overeating. And so those patterns for me are the same. And I have asked myself similar questions of why do I want to eat this? Why do I want to seek sex right now? What am I trying to get relief from. And so I just want to touch on that, that it is, this is a piece of a broader conversation of the human condition, honestly. Right. Yeah. Addiction and impulsive behaviors and habits, they can come mm -hmm. in so mm -hmm. many different forms. Yes. And I, I can't remember the person to give credit to, but I, I heard addiction described as ritualized compulsive comfort seeking. And when we look at it in that lens, it broadens that because addiction is not the homeless person on the street using at any chance. It is every single person that you meet. We are all seeking comfort. And in some ways that can be healthy and connecting. And in some ways that can be destructive and isolating isolating. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to kind of touch on that. What you said about like a, an addict, isn't just the homeless man on the street that you're passing mm -hmm. by that you kind of look mm -hmm. away from. Like an addict can be literally any one of us. And, and I, I think that for me, when I was trying to get clean or, or thinking about maybe getting clean or, you know, maybe this is an issue. It was like, okay, well, what is an addict though? Because that's not me. Like I am a 20 year old female who has, you know, 
a good family life and, you know, I have some money and I have a car, like I have, I have these things, you know? And, and so for me in my head, that, that picture of what an addict or an alcoholic was, was, you know, an a, a old man or woman who's stumbling and, you know, with a bottle in their hand with, you know, a little trash bag over it, like, or, or someone who's in the street, you know, shooting up, like, yeah, th- that is absolutely addiction, but that's also like me too. And, you know, I like to say that addiction does not discriminate, it does not discriminate. It can be, you know, someone who is religious, someone who is atheist, someone who is straight, someone who is gay, someone who is black, white, Latino, like anything, anyone. And, you know, it's scary, but it doesn't discriminate. But also recovery doesn't either. There is, there is hope. And I like the idea of diminishing returns um, as well for addiction. And by that, I mean, it's no longer doing what you thought it would. And it's, you're not getting from it the benefit, but whatever the substance is, whatever the behavior is, it's not doing for you what you hoped it would do for you. Mm-hmm. And it's actually in the big picture when you zoom out, although it's providing temporary relief, it's not providing you what you really are seeking deep down. It's just giving you kind of a snooze button on the pain or the loneliness or whatever it is that you don't want to feel and are having trouble accepting. And the other point that Kate made beautifully um, is that, yeah, addiction has as many faces as there are potentially people. And the point at which you get help is going to be probably as much as you're willing to subjectively tolerate. And for some people, if you have really deep emotional pain and issues from your past, perhaps, or tangible life problems that you don't know how to solve, whether that's employment or homelessness or whatever the case may be, all of those are potential um, you know, outcomes of this idea of a progressive disability or progressive loss of structure and order and health. So, you know, thank God, you know, Kate was able to get help as a young adult. For some people, they're not ready, able, or willing to uh, look for that until they have lost a lot more in their life. And so whatever point you have that light bulb moment, that aha moment of like, yeah. And, and it's not, I don't want people to think that they have to admit, like there's this such a stigma, you know, mm-hmm. still with addiction that mm-hmm. that doesn't happen to someone like me, right? That happens to other people, other people who are different, right? And we have all of these, you know, as clinicians uh, and, and anyone who studies psychology, you know, we have all these cognitive biases and cognitive distortions that can come into play because our, our little egos fear, uh, you know, negative labels and whatnot. So don't be afraid. This isn't, this is about actually helping you get what you say you want out of life. It's not about taking anything away or adding a negative label to you. So I think it's really helpful when we can frame the conversation and look at what this is really about. This is about helping you be happier and healthier, right? The very things that you turn to these substances or behaviors to do for you that you're realizing aren't doing for you what you hope they would. 
So I just want this to be a positive um, conversation. And I think it has been, but for many people, this can fall into the, you know, bad boy, bad girl kind of mentality, or, you know, we want to be a holy roller or something like that. And that's really not what I hope anyone's taking away or hearing when we're talking about this today. That's a great point. I think we tend to focus on, okay, what is my life going to be without, you know, instead of how can my life be so much richer, you know, without having to use alcohol or drugs? Where else can I find that happiness, that healthy happiness? And one other point, just to follow up on that, is that you might not be able to find happiness today or tomorrow by going to a party sober or, uh, you know, going to the beach or whatever the event is. But that doesn't mean that you won't be able to, in the future, learn the skills, learn the attitudes, learn the other ways of connection and relating to one another, really. Because I really have a belief, and, and Dr. Gabor Mate is a guru in this field, and he really talks about addiction being a disease of loneliness and disconnection. And there's so much new research that has come out, uh, you know, just hitting home that the more people use and engage in some of these behaviors that are having negative consequences, the more it isolates them. And then to cope with that, they end up using more and it ends up being a downward spiral. So it's really about finding connection. And because the addict is relating to their object of pleasure, whatever it may be, in a uh, almost like a relationship, uh, like a, like a human relationship, that ends up being almost abusive, uh, or it is abusive if it is going into the realm of addiction and dependency, right? Because you're getting these little—it's almost like a domestic abuse situation. You know, you're getting these little moments of happiness, but when you zoom out and look at the big picture, you're like, oh, this is really dark. This is actually there's a lot of um, unhealth here. And, uh, and, and it's, it's doing harm to me actually. Um, so I did just want to also mention that a lot of times there is, or there are underlying issues with how to connect authentically and meaningfully and healthily to other people and really feel validated and accepted as a person for, for who I am and celebrated and, and not just tolerated, but you know, cherished for, for that. And if you don't have that in your life, I would also say that's uh, another factor of uh, being a candidate for becoming addicted. Mm -hmm. Great point. Great point. And I, you know, I would be faulted for not, you know, addressing that we are recording this, you know, just after we hit the year mark of the pandemic. And there has been an increase in alcohol use and drug use. Um, for people being in isolation and not having that connection. Exactly. So I'd like to end with a question from a student. Um, we had uh, some students uh, submit questions uh, right, related to, to this podcast and to this subject. And so if I could hear maybe from each one of you from your own experience and from your own background, how you would answer this question. What is the best way to be there for a friend with a substance abuse problem? That's a big question. That's why I need all of you to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess I'll go first. I, 
I feel for my friends who were there for me during my addiction, um, my active addiction. And, you know, some of them, some of them stayed around and tried to help and tried to, you know, show me that, you know, what I was doing wasn't healthy, wasn't okay. And like, I wasn't open to hearing that. And I believe that probably a lot of people in that phase of their active addiction aren't open to hearing about themselves. And I, you know, at this point in my life, being in recovery and clean, I I have friends that go back out and use, and it's really, really painful. And so for me now, trying to be there for them, I'm getting a taste of what people felt when they were with me in my addiction. So what that looks like for me is setting boundaries and, you know, it doesn't look the way that I would anticipate it looking, which is like, oh, I'll just be there for them and help them and, and do all these things for them. And, and, you know, that is, that is the, the, the knee jerk reaction of like, I, I will do all of these things and I will, you know, go to the ends of the earth to help and to be there. And that is not sustainable. So for me, it looks a lot like having to set a boundary of like, listen, if, if this is going to be your behaviors, if this is going to be what you're surrounding your life with, I can't be around for it. And I will be here when you're ready. And obviously that's a lot, lot easier said than done. And I realize that, but it is, it is my reality and it's a sad reality because someone who is using is not going to be ready until they're ready. You know, they're just not. And I I think that now would be a good plug-in for um, Al-Anon, which is a resource for family members who have a loved one in in active addiction. Um, And it can be really, really helpful. I know that my, my parents used it when I was in active addiction and yeah. So that's, that's my piece, I think. I guess I can go next. I love what uh, you said, Kate, and, and really w- the word that just comes to mind for me is boundaries. Um, you know, what are the healthy uh, boundaries that you need to set? And, and for those who aren't familiar with that term, that just means be very clear and deliberate and communicate in advance how you're willing to help and support and how you're not. And the one thing that you don't want to do is become an enabler. Um, and, you know, in, in the addiction recovery community, we talk about enabling and those are behaviors which on the surface seem good and helpful and kind. But when you, again, kind of step back, they actually are supporting and enabling or allowing the addiction to continue and flourish. So it could be little things like lending them the money to get you know, what they want for drugs or alcohol or providing them with their drug or substance of choice. It could also be giving them false hope or reassuring them that, oh, you don't really have a problem, you know, or whatever when they really do. So it it can take many different shapes and forms. It it could be providing them with, uh, you know, housing or any number of of things when there's no, uh, you know, they're not paying rent or, or whatever. Like, on the surface, it's solving a problem that they have. But 
when you step back, you can kind of see how that is directly or indirectly supporting their continuing in addiction. And so just be really clear with looking at all of the intended as well as unintended consequences of how you're relating to this person. And, you know, it doesn't mean you necessarily have to stop being their friend. Of course not unless it is coming at a harm to your own health. And, and that's the second point I want to make is that, you know, don't help someone if it is doing harm to yourself. Don't put yourself in harm's way. Um, you know, kind of like I have a, a, a another friend, UF graduate, Jason Simon, who used to say, you know, like in the airplane, when the stewardess or steward is telling you, put your own air mask on first before trying to help someone else put theirs on, you know, so that that way you can stay conscious to help other people if there is a drop in pressure or lack of oxygen. So make sure that, you know, you are filling your own cup and maintaining healthy boundaries for yourself before you're going out trying to help and save, um, you know, other people, quote unquote. So I just wanted to say healthy boundaries. And last, my last point really quickly is let them know that as long as they're sober, you're there for them. You know, I love that boundary for a lot of people is call me anytime, day or night. I will come. I will be there with you. I will talk with you. We can go out and get coffee. We can go out and, you know, get pancakes or whatever it is you like to do. Be a tangible present presence for them in their life and provide them with some of those things that they're seeking that they might not know they're seeking. And that's friendship. That's warmth. That's acceptance. And that is uh, love really is what it comes down to. Speaking very briefly on, on what Alan was saying about enabling, like what we, my fellow friends and addicts in recovery, we have to allow them their pain. Um, and I think that like sometimes when we don't enable and, and we do set those boundaries, we are allowing that person their pain and we're allowing them to reach the bottom that they need to reach in order to get clean. You know, so if that means us saying, no, you can't sleep on my couch again, and they have to spend the night in the car, maybe that's going to be the, the thing that breaks that cycle for them or, you know, numerous other, you know, examples of that. Um, but, you know, that, that idea of like allowing them that pain, allowing them their misery, allowing them their consequences to maybe be the caveat to get to getting clean. And I think just to uh, reiterate that is if you're repeatedly saving someone from the negative consequences of their own choices, that's enabling. Mm -hmm. Letting someone once in a while crash on your couch because they're in town or, you know, they're between apartments for a week or something is very different from letting someone live at your place while they're in active addiction, you know, and not pay rent or, you know, to have any responsibility. So I think that's a great point. Absolutely. When I think about this question, of course, I could answer it clinically. Like I've been there for my clients struggling with substance use abuse, but I think it would be more impactful for me to answer this personally, which changes the question a little bit to how, do I be there for a parent struggling with substances, which I think is many people's story. And I think it really depends on if you're still living with them or not, because when you're in a situation that you cannot realistically get out of, it is absolutely about protecting yourself because I can't 
I couldn't change my mother. You can't change other people. I spent a lot of time just in my room with my door closed in my own private Idaho, right? And so if you're a college student still living with your parents or family member who is using substances, um, it may not be about boundary setting in that way because you're not in a position of power or you're not in a position where you can choose to leave. That could also be if I'm a college student living with my roommate who drinks excessively or or drinks to where I'm uncomfortable, um, I may not have the power to be like, hey, please stop drinking, (laughs) you you know, because I need that roommate to have that living, you know, and so it is more about what are my boundaries of I'm not going to leave my room if they're in the living room drinking, or I'm going to go to my friend's house who doesn't drink if I'm uncomfortable with it. Or I think it's just, it's okay to protect yourself. You don't have any obligation to support another person struggling with addiction. I think people can and do, and it is so important too. And I was a child and a teenager who thought it was my responsibility to fix my parents. And it was not. And so I just wanted to give voice to that perspective that I, I heard in that initial question. Thank you so much for that perspective, Savannah. I know that that is going to touch a lot of people listening. And thank you all, Alan, Kate, Savannah, for your perspectives and your insight and your wisdom and for being so candid. I wish we had more time. I could, I could probably talk all day about this subject, but thank you again so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find CWC Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Please leave us a rating and review us. Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.